You're listening to Surreal Sports Stories with your host, Mike Ginocchio. The year is 2006. Our story takes place around Greeley, Colorado, a sleepy college town of about 100,000, and home to the University of Northern Colorado Bears. The football season has begun, and while I'd like to say that the Bears are putting forth their best foot forward to start the season, they're not. The Bears opened their season on September 2nd and got smacked 7-38 against UC Davis. A week later, on September 9th, they got steamrolled by Portland State 3-45. to Looking like title contenders, they're not. Two nights later, on Monday, September 11th, Rafael Mendoza is walking out of his Jeep Cherokee across the parking lot to the apartment where he and his fiance live. It's late at night, and Mendoza is tired. He's the starting punter for the football team of the University of Northern Colorado, a position that is far more strategic than most give it credit for. Usually, when football fans see the punt team coming out to the field, they groan because their offense couldn't move the ball and they have to give it away. A good punter, however, is laser-like in his ability to pin the opposing team back in their own side of the field and put the momentum in the hands of his defense. It's an artful position for a situation that looks like a retreat. In the first two games of the season, Mendoza has had to punt the ball nine times, averaging about 40 yards per punt. Not too shabby, but he feels like he could do better. He's ready to get into his apartment and call it a night. He would never make it. All of a sudden, Mendoza feels a blast of pain on the back of his head, and something smacks him unawares. He is knocked to the ground, and his assailant is on top of him. Mendoza desperately tries to fight off his attacker, but the hooded figure has the element of surprise and has the high ground. There's another flash of pain, searing and excruciating. The attacker has drawn a knife, and has stabbed Mendoza right in the thigh. Later, doctors would say that the wound went five inches deep. Almost as soon as it happened, the attack was over. Another car has pulled into the parking lot, its headlights shining bright. The mystery assailant dashes off into a car whose license plate is covered by tape and speeds off into the night, leaving behind Mendoza in a pool of his own blood. Mendoza was rushed to the emergency room. Thankfully, his wounds were serious but not life-threatening. Rafael Mendoza suffered a baseball-sized knot on the side of his neck from the initial hit and a five-inch deep stab wound in the back of his right thigh. He would be released from the hospital the next day to recover at home. While in the emergency room, Mendoza's mind was a storm of confusion and near panic. Who would want to do this to him? What did he have that was worth a mugging? Was it his car? He did have a nice Jeep Cherokee with new rims and an upgraded stereo system. But was that worth stabbing someone over? One thing continued to roil about in his mind. He remembered the scuffle, a blur that it was. And he remembered that though the attacker had successfully got him in the leg, he knew that wasn't the initial target. Mendoza was convinced his attacker was aiming for his chest. Two days later, Rafael Mendoza is sitting in his mom Florence's home in suburban Denver. He is hobbling around on crutches, but right now his focus isn't on the crutches or the dinner his mom has made. He's paying attention to the phone call his mom is currently on with local police investigators. This has to be the big breakthrough call, right? They wouldn't call his mom unless they had some new information, right? The call ends. She hangs up and looks at her son. Honey she said. They said it was the other punter. There's a crashing sound as Rafael Mendoza drops his plate to the floor. He hobbles over to the couch, collapses into a heap, and begins to cry. 
An hour north of Florence Mendoza's house, Greeley police have arrested and charged 21-year-old Mitchell Kozad, a walk-on from Wheatland, Colorado, and Mendoza's backup at the punter position with second-degree assault. Later, the DA's office would tack on a charge of attempted murder. Let's take a moment and let it sink in. We have a case where a teammate is accused of attempting to injure, if not outright kill, his teammate. Look, we know that sports can be a bit aggressive, but seriously? To attempt to kill a guy? Why would someone do this? To get closer to the answer, we're going to need to reconstruct the lead-up to the night of the crime. And we're going to need to take a closer look at the accused, Mitchell Kozad. By all accounts, Mitchell Kozad grew up just like about every boy in America, raised to love sports. His mother was the one who nurtured his love of games, and to have a supportive mom in the corner is a boost of encouragement that athletes lean heavily on, even when the going gets rough. She would come out to the field with him long after practice was over, watching him kick and practice. To her, it was a way to bring her and her son closer together. And just like every kid in America who plays sports and plays sports with a degree of devotion, Kozad dreamed of being a star. That's not abnormal. Any kid in a jersey thinks that they're going to be the next big star. The thing is, as we all know, the statistical probability of you making the pros and making millions of dollars playing a sport is next to nothing. Frankly, you might have a better chance of getting struck by lightning than becoming a pro athlete. Most people hear that, and though it breaks their heart, they accept it. But then there are others who hear that, and then they stand outside in a rainstorm holding a metal rod. Depending on who you asked, Kozad's mother fell into that second category, pressuring her son to succeed in sports and to become a star. And by all accounts, Mitchell Kozad listened to his mom. There was a complicating factor, however. Mitchell Kozad wasn't that good. Sure, he was good enough to play in high school, but when he graduated, there were no Division I powerhouse schools throwing scholarships and money at him. The best he could do was go to Wyoming and walk on to the football team. For those not in the know, being a walk-on is the sports equivalent of being a charity case. They're members of the roster that are not on scholarship, and they are mostly viewed as a warm body to fill out the roster. Sure, you see a few walk-on players who actually make an impact with the team, but the reason that you actually hear about those stories is because the media loves a good underdog story. For every rare walk-on who becomes a star, there are countless others that never have their story told. Furthermore, walk-ons don't usually get rewarded for their hard work with a scholarship until, if they're lucky, their senior year. That wasn't good enough for Kozad. Fearing he wouldn't get a scholarship with Wyoming until it was too late, Kozad transferred to Northern Colorado. He claimed to have received other offers, but wanted to be closer to home. Also, here he had a chance. The previous season, the Bears had been 4-7, and seven, not exactly a competitive squad. Here's where the story starts to get weird. Kozad's family claims that during his first preseason camp with the Bears, he had averaged 43.7 yards per punt. For context, those are starting for a good college or even NFL team numbers, and that he set a team weightlifting record for kickers by bench-pressing 340 pounds. However, this clashed with what the team saw. According to police documents, during the week of September 4th, a week after the Bears' home opener, Kozad had asked the coaching staff how he was doing. They replied that he was being outperformed by other players and that he needed to work harder. This corroborated what other players noticed by their own eyewitness accounts. And during Mitchell Kozad's eventual trial, head coach Scott Downing testified that he didn't have the numbers on how Kozad had done. But furthermore, in a more damning admission, he noted that he and the coaching staff felt, quote, his leg didn't have the pop we felt like it should have. That's classic coach speak for, he's not good enough. 
When the Bears broke preseason camp, it was decided. Kozad had performed well enough to be on the team, but not well enough to be the team's starting punter. It was declared that returning junior Rafael Mendoza would be the guy. The news devastated Kozad. According to one teammate, Kozad, quote, just wanted that job so bad. In addition, the teammate noted that the coach's decision had a ripple effect. Kozad had apparently decided that the source of blame fell on the man who'd beaten him. And because of this, Kozad had developed a, quote, extreme hatred, competition, and jealousy towards Mendoza. Rafael Mendoza didn't have any inkling that this was going on. From what he remembered, all of his interactions had been professional at worst, pleasant at best with Kozad. But he did remember a curious instance at practice in the fall. The team had been split up into position drills, with Mendoza and Kozad working with the kickers. But the coaches asked that senior defensive back Jason Hildenbrand join the kickers that day. He was the team's emergency punter, a position whose very existence betrays just how overprepared football coaches like to be for any contingency. However, when Hildenbrand joined the kickers, Kozad wasn't happy. Quote, Mitch would get angry, real angry, Mendoza said. He wouldn't want him there. At the time, it seemed a weirdly jealous reaction to someone who, quite frankly, would never actually need to go on the field and punt. But in retrospect, Mendoza had to wonder, if he thought that about Hildenbrand, what in the world did he think of me? And then Mendoza's mind went back to another curious event. On September 7th, four days before the attack, Mendoza had been walking back to his apartment when he noticed someone was walking swiftly across the parking lot towards him. The mystery figure was wearing black sweatpants and had his black hoodie zipped up tight around his face. But before anything could happen, Mendoza was saved. His fiancée Megan was up on the balcony, and she called out to him that if he didn't hurry up, he wasn't going to get dinner before it got cold. Megan hadn't seen the mystery man. And Mendoza noticed that as soon as his fiancée's voice cut through the parking lot, the hooded man stopped approaching Mendoza and turned around and began stretching as if he was about to go for a jog. At the time, Mendoza thought it was a wrestler for Northern Colorado. Made sense. Most of the people who lived in the apartment complex were school athletes. But why had the guy basically rushed him? Why had he had his hoodie zipped up so tight? It was only until after the attack that Mendoza realized the guy on the 7th and the guy who attacked him on the 11th were wearing the same clothes. But perhaps it was all a coincidence. Perhaps this was not the work of Mitchell Kozad. Perhaps it was the work of someone else entirely, as Kozad's defense attorney would allege at trial. Maybe Mitchell Kozad wasn't even involved. Well, to answer that, we need to take a look at the evidence. But when we look at the evidence, it doesn't look good for Mitchell Kozad. Rewind back to the night of the attack. It was reported at around 9.30pm. Roughly 10 minutes later, a local liquor store clerk noticed a car matching the description now on police reports had stopped outside the store. The clerk witnessed someone get out of the car and remove tape from both the front and back license plate. As the car drove off, the clerk was able to get a good look at the plate. It wasn't hard to remember. The license plate read, 8-K-I-K-R. 8-Kicker. 8 was Mitchell Kozad's number. When police ran the plates, they saw that the car was registered to Susie Kozad, Mitchell's mom. There's more. In the week before the attack, freshman place kicker Michael York was approached by Kozad. York testified to police that Mitchell Kozad asked him where Mendoza lived. When York questioned him, Kozad replied that it was because he was looking for a better place to live than where he currently was, and he figured Mendoza might know. It was in the days after this conversation that Mendoza had his first encounter with the hooded man. When this case landed on the desk of Ken Buck, the district attorney of Weld County, Colorado, he had to resist shaking his head. 
The national media was already running with the narrative that this was a remake of the infamous Tanya Harding-Nancy Kerrigan attack, only featuring quiet Colorado and lower-tier college football. Furthermore, it seemed ridiculous. Who would go through all of this trouble to be a team's starting punter? The quarterback? Well, in a twisted sort of sense, maybe, but the punter? But as he thumbed through the reports, Buck felt a personal connection to the case. Buck had been Princeton class of 1981, and he had played on the football team, where he'd been the starting punter. And now he had to prosecute the case of one punter attacking another. It was, quite simply, the kind of case that he was born to take. Buck went to work, analyzing the police reports and affidavits taken from players and people who knew both Kozan and Mendoza. And the more he studied the case, the more he unearthed that indubitably tied Kozad to the case. There was the license plate on his mom's car, sure, and there were the other players and individuals providing circumstantial evidence that could tie together with the concrete evidence that he already had. But he also had the testimony of Kozad's girlfriend, Angela Vogel. Vogel told police that, while she was interviewing with them, Kozad had been texting her. He'd included statements such as, quote, We were not apart between 8 and 12, 12 being Rafael Mendoza's number, and, more damningly, quote, Please be strong for me. Did you say we got food? The former text suggests a potential motive, that Mendoza and Kozad weren't all that far apart in skill. The second message implied that Kozad wanted Vogel to cover for him. Neither message looked good for him. Vogel was also on the record saying that Kozad had felt extreme pressure from his mom to succeed in sports, especially in punting. Armed with all of the evidence, as well as the timeline of events, Ken Buck was convinced that Kozad had stabbed Mendoza. What bothered him was the why. Assume that Kozad somehow manages to get away with it, and no one manages to tie him to the crime. What is he left with? He becomes a starter for a team that, after all of this insanity, would end up finishing 1-10, in and would be outscored by their opponents over the course of the season by a margin of 374-129. to Sure, that score differential suggests the Bears would punt a lot, but at what cost? Would anyone care if you averaged 50 yards a punt for a team that is absolutely terrible? Sure, Northern Colorado had sent players to the NFL, but only 16 in the program's history. Contrast that with a school like the University of Alabama, which has had 365 players drafted to the NFL. Lower-level schools like Northern Colorado only get noticed if they're good. Buck knew what it felt like to have awful and heroic moments in sports. His junior year at Princeton, during one game he'd had a chance to punt and had booted it a pathetic 30 yards. But as luck would have it, his team was called for a penalty on that play, and the defense elected for him to kick again. He wound up crushing it down the field for 70 yards. It was an exhilarating memory. But at the end of the day, that's all that it was. A memory. And as Buck knew, for most kids that's all that sports ends up being. An accumulation of cool memories. A few months after the attack, Mitchell Kozad was put on trial for second-degree assault and attempted murder. His defense came with everything it could. First, the defense alleged that Kozad had been deprived of his right to an attorney while he was originally interviewed by the police and claimed they had bullied him into talking without an attorney. Second, they claimed that Angela Vogel was not his girlfriend, but merely a close friend. Third, they stated that the attack was not carried out by Kozad, but rather by someone else, a fellow student who lived in Kozad's building named Kevin Osprung. Piece by piece, Kozad's defense was picked apart. His claim of being bullied by officers hit a snag when it was revealed that he had chosen to speak to investigators without an attorney present and had openly stated to the detectives that he had, quote, nothing to hide. As per the attempt to portray Vogel as merely a friend instead of his girlfriend, 
Vogel would testify in court that she had originally lied to the police that she had been with Kozad. Considering the penalties for perjury, it is difficult to believe that someone would lie about saying they lied to the police. Whether or not the person in question is one's girlfriend or merely a close friend is not something taken into consideration. As per the attempt to portray Ospring as the attacker, Ospring testified in court that he had been with Kozad that night and that he had been in the car with Kozad the night of the attack. He had helped Kozad take the tape off of the car, but testified, again, under oath, that he saw Kozad return from the parking lot and place something in a plastic bag and urge Ospring that they needed to get out of there now. Ospring stated that while he didn't ask and Kozad didn't tell, he was scared in that moment about what had happened. And he stated under oath that he was testifying without protection of immunity that Kozad had been the attacker and that he himself had not. Seeking a Hail Mary, the Kozad family declared that their son had passed a polygraph test when asked if he had anything to do with the crime. This may have helped, but there was a problem. Polygraph tests by Colorado law are not accepted as admissible evidence in court. In the midst of all of this, D.A. Buck stuck to the consistent narrative that the facts told him, that Mitchell Kozad, in a desperate attempt to become the team punter, had stabbed Rafael Mendoza in his kicking leg. Finally, after a week of testimony and almost a year after the initial attack, a verdict was reached on August 2, 2007. Kozad's family was present. So, too, was Rafael Mendoza and his family. Since the attack, Mendoza had struggled. He jumped at the sounds of doors opening and closing, he struggled to sleep, and he never went out at night without a case of pepper spray on him. Here, now, he was hoping, if not for justice, then at the very least, for closure. On the charge of attempted murder, what say the jury? Not guilty. Ken Buck was disappointed, but not terribly surprised. Because there was no witness to the attack, no one could corroborate Mendoza's claim that the attacker had initially gone for his chest. Disappointing, but one could see where the jury was coming from. But in the courtroom, Rafael Mendoza and his family was beginning to panic. What if his attacker got off scot-free? On the charge of second-degree assault, what say the jury? Guilty. Relief flooded through the Mendoza family. Now, finally, they would see some degree of justice. The conviction carried with it a sentence of between 5 to 16 years, and though Rafael and his family argued that Kozad deserved the maximum sentence, the judge sentenced Mitchell Kozad to 7 years in prison. On a professional level, Ken Buck was pleased. But at the same time, he was philosophically disappointed. Quote, It's just over the top. The whole country has gone over the top, he said. Obviously, this guy is different. Not everybody is like Mitch Kozad, but I believe he is a symptom of the pressure we put on athletes today. I have no question about that. To add to his point, Buck noted a curious difference between the two families. On one side, the Mendoza family thanked him and mentioned that they had been praying for the family of Mitchell Kozad. On the other side, the Kozad family yelled at Buck and called him a terrible person. Buck shrugged, quote, I'm used to it. At least they didn't throw tomatoes. He also spotted a divide between the families that went deeper. Quote, Just look at these two families. You have wonderful values and crappy values in the same case. And in both instances, it doesn't look like the apple fell very far from the tree. Rafael Mendoza also noted that he was disappointed by the Kozad family for apparently staring him and his family down as they left the courthouse. Quote, I understand they're angry, Mendoza said, but there's no reason to be angry at us. I didn't do anything wrong. Throughout the trial, Kozad said nothing in his defense. We have no idea why he might have done this. But that doesn't stop us from asking the question, why? Why? 
Why would someone do this? Is it because we push our young athletes to succeed at any and all cost? If there's one thing America is good at, it's manufacturing an obsession about athletics. Have we swung too far in the direction of the ancient Romans, who craved and demanded bloodshed from the gladiators in the Colosseum? Or is this too much hand-wringing, and is Mitch Kozad simply cut from a different cloth than a solely isolated incident? I would argue that it's both, to an extent. Sure, we push our athletes to succeed, and we demand perfection from them, especially if they play for our team, but absolutely nothing excuses attempting to kill a teammate just because you think that you deserve the starting position that they have. It is an entitlement that goes beyond words and is absolutely inexcusable. But we as a society need to remember something. Lost in the midst of the million-dollar contracts and the billion-dollar television deals and the rampant endorsements thrown at professional athletes, sports are games. They are something that we play as kids, and a blessed lucky few are able to continue playing that game for a career. But we can never, ever forget that at the end of the day, sports are designed to be a collection of cool memories for those who played, as well as the lessons we learn or don't learn along the way. Because if we continue, and if we truly create an every-man-for-himself, win-at-all-cost attitude in athletics, then we will create more Mitchell Kozads. This has been another episode of Surreal Sports Stories. Sources for today's episode come from ESPN.com, AP News, The Denver Post, ABCNews.com, The New York Times, The Greeley Tribune, and many more. Surreal Sports Stories can be found on sites such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor Podcasts, Breaker.audio, Pocket Casts, Overcast, Radio Public, and Google Podcasts. If you like the show, feel free to drop a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks again for listening. And I'll catch you next time. I'm your host, Mike Ginocchio. Stay steady, y'all. I'm